Welcome to the Marketplace Midland podcast, where we highlight a monthly speaker that shares helpful tools for all of us to integrate timeless biblical principles into our modern businesses. Um, We are so glad uh, to have Kevin here and to get to hear a little bit more about his story and what God's laid on his heart. So please join me in welcoming Kevin Sparks. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, so um, I know most of you guys, it's a, I don't know if I'd call that a friendly audience or not, um, <clears throat> but I am Kevin Sparks, for those of you who don't know, know me, um, I am a Marketplace Midland board member um, and president of Discovery Operating, uh, but recently um, I've been elected to the Texas State Senate, and what's crazy is that this time last year, I'd never even contemplated doing that. I mean, who, who would want to go do that, right? Um, apparently, it's a big deal. I was just in Austin yesterday, and I have never been so good-looking, so smart, so funny. I'm telling you, you know, if I had time to go play golf, um, they'd probably even compliment my golf game. And you guys that have seen me swing, you know there's nothing to compliment about my golf game. Um, but it's really, it's, it, it's really interesting because um, you get in those circles and I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I'm the new guy and everybody, I don't have an opponent in uh, November, so it's just a matter of time. I get one vote in November and I'm in. And so, don't know that I can always... Count on Jill, sometimes depends on the day, but my mom, I'm certain, is going to vote for me. Um, um, it, but it's, it's really interesting the way people in um, that business, and when I say business, it's the business of government and everything that goes along with that, lobbyists and all the folks that are trying to persuade, um, kind of see our, our representatives um, yeah, I've known about some of that stuff, but I'm sure I've got plenty to learn. Um, so, so how did I get here? Um, so the short story is I was approached last summer by a few folks. I, I kind of laugh a little bit. Used to call them my friends who approached me last summer and said, would you consider running for this spot? Uh, some of those guys are actually in this group. Um, but really, as Jill, and this is my wife, Jill, for those, raise your hand, Jill. <clears throat> for those of you who don't know Jilly, um, um, you know, we started contemplating and kind of praying through it and You know, the long short of it is we couldn't come up with a good enough reason to say no or not to say yes. Um, You know, if good people don't step up um, when called, then you know what's left. And so so we made made the decision to answer the call and uh, immediately, you know, I start getting calls from media, 
you know, asking me questions, all kinds of questions. Hey, can we come interview you? You know, what, what are your thoughts on this and that? And, and I felt a little bit, initially I felt a little bit like Forrest Gump. If you guys remember the scene in the movie when, um, he, you know, he's, he's just been discharged from the army. He's still in his, still in his uniform and he kind of gets pushed into a line. And the next thing you know, he's standing up on a stage in front of hundreds of thousands of war protesters. And the guy says, hey, tell us about Vietnam. And that's kind of what I felt like. You know, I've, I've never dealt with the media before. I'm getting phone calls. People are saying, hey, can you come speak at our whatever? And um, really, really interesting and challenging at the same time. But that, so that's kind of the short version of what happened. But today, I, I'd kind of like to take you through a longer version um, because as, I, as we, and Jill's right in this whole thing, this mess with me, as we got further into the campaign, I began to understand that <clears throat> all of this didn't just start last summer, that this a lot of this had been orchestrated over a long period of time. <clears throat> you know, during different parts of the campaign, people had asked me if I was nervous. And realistically, I never got nervous, which is a little uncharacteristic for me. Um, because if I didn't win... You know, the good news is, hey, I'd raise my hand I, as long as I did everything I could do. Um, you know, I could hold my head up and go back to doing what I love doing, which is doing oil and gas stuff with my, my family and my coworkers. We have several of those in the back of the room who are nice enough to show up today. And I mean, they're like family, right? So I go back to doing business with my family. And so how could I lose? Um, and I learned a little bit about that, I think. Um, growing up playing athletics, you know, I was a good athlete, but I wasn't a great athlete, but I was fiercely competitive. And so, you know, I had to learn, I had to learn um, how to be okay with the results. And I didn't actually, I didn't actually learn that till well into my adult years. Um, you know, as some of you guys may remember, I got <clears throat> at one point in time, I was playing in men's church basketball, and at that time they had a rule, if you got a technical and you were thrown out of the game and uh, get reinstated, you had to go by and see your pastor. And um, I found myself in that position, and those of you guys who know Patrick Payton, who is fiercely competitive, um, myself and another uh, co-member of this church found ourselves in Patrick's office, and when we walked in, he just rolled his eyes and said, oh, come on, guys. Um, but, I, but I have gotten better over the years um, understanding that, you know, it's not, it's not just about winning. The Apostle Paul says in uh, Philippians 4, 12, and 13 says, in this way, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When I finally, and I, of course, I'd heard that a long time, um, but when I finally understood and embraced that concept, I mean, it's a game changer. You know, I learned, 
uh, and I am reminded often that I'm only responsible for my attitude and my effort. It's God that's responsible for the outcome. And I have very little to do with the outcome, no matter how hard I try. It's honestly, it's very freeing. You know, if I've got a well that, you know, we've got problems on and we're overseeing it and doing everything we can to manage that situation as best we can, you know, we can't see down two miles. And we wind, and that wind, and that winds up going south. You know, I'm not responsible for that result. All I can do is the best that I can do with the tools that God has given me. You know, if I'm in a serious discussion and that discussion doesn't go well, as long as my heart is in the right place and, um, you know, I have prepared and done the best I can, I'm not responsible for those results. If I run a race and I don't wind up coming out on top, you know, I've done what I was called to do. So this attitude of winning at all cost that has gripped our nation, uh, I think, is really tearing us apart. Um, And this is a little bit of the political part of, of my discussion today. You know, we see it in sports. We definitely see it in politics. We see it in relationships. You know, I have family. We have family that after Trump was elected, from my vantage point, they just lost their mind. There have been other presidents that I wasn't too fond of their policies. But, you know, we still got together for family reunions. Well, President Trump gets elected and, man, you're off the Christmas card list if you voted for him. It's just, it's almost bizarre. You know, we see it in business. When I first got into this industry, I would say that, you know, most of the contracts that I looked over and signed were probably three to five pages, seven maybe, you know, was kind of a long agreement. My goodness, now, you know, we don't sign a single contract that's not 35 or 40 pages, and a lot of them are 80 or 90. And if you get the attorneys involved, the sky's the limit, right? Uh, And I I think that comes from this idea of winning at all cost means that we'll, we, and I use that term generically, will do whatever it takes. And so, therefore, when we go into negotiations, we don't trust anybody at the table because we're used to working now in a world of planning to do whatever it takes. Well, you know, I I don't want to burst the attorneys in the room, their bubble, but you can't draft up an agreement to cover everything that could possibly happen over the life of that agreement. It's just impossible. Um, but I, I really do believe that this winning at all cost is, is something that um, our society, it, it's really tearing at the fabric of our society. Jesus said when asked about what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said that is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so there wasn't anything in there about winning at all cost. In fact, when Jesus talking to his disciples, you know, he says, um, 
the first will be last and the last will be first. So it doesn't matter if you win an argument with your wife, if you're sleeping on the couch at the end of the day, you still lost, right? (laughs) Dallas Willard, an American philosopher known for his writings on Christian spiritual formation, is quoted as saying, it's not the accomplishments you achieve, it's the person you become. He wrote a lot about the slow unglamorous building of character. So as we spent more time on the campaign trail, it forced me to really search my heart to define why and what I believed about all kinds of issues. The best question I was asked while I was on the campaign trail was actually from a high school student. We were up in Dalhart at uh, meet and greet, and um, uh, one of the the teachers from uh, TextLine, I think, brought the whole senior class, you know, all 12 of them. Um, And I was really appreciative that he did, and so I, I... I was taking questions from the audience, and you know, most people will ask, you know, what, what are you passionate about? What, what issues are you, know, are you really going to try and make a difference on? And she asked, what makes you qualified for this job? All right. Wow. So I had to think about it a little bit. Um, well, you know, we are expecting our legislators to go to Austin and to conduct the business of the state on our behalf. And so, you know, I think 35 years in business, uh, hopefully I've learned some things about that, and that hopefully qualifies me to go conduct business on y'all's behalf. The other part of that equation is, hopefully, you know, I'm I'm a person who has been engaged in that slow, what would he say, that, that slow, unglamorous building of character. Uh, there were other questions while we were, you know, on the campaign trail. Uh, Jill got cornered one time. <laughs> Jill got cornered one time, and, and this guy um, asked her um, if she was for the genital mutilation um, that is circumcising. Uh, you know, honestly, if he had asked me that while I was on stage, I might have laughed. Um, so fortunately, fortunately for me, not so much for Jill, you know, she's engaged in this conversation about, you know, mutilation. But um, I'm, she handled it well. Uh, I had a guy ask, I had a guy ask um, at a candidate forum um, if I'd put any thought into Texas um, setting up its own monetary system. And my initial thought was, oh, this guy's a quack. (laughs) Fortunately, I didn't voice that. But as I thought about that a little bit, you know, I'm thinking, you know, we... 
probably would benefit from some people much smarter than myself to at least put a little thought into that. Um, if Washington, D.C. eventually melts down, might be helpful to at least have kind of run through a couple of mental exercises on what that might look like. So, you know, all through the campaign trail, uh, I was actually getting stretched um, in, in a lot of ways that I hadn't been previously. I mean, it really forced me to think deeply about why I believe what I believe. Um, and as I search deep into what I believe, it really all comes from a biblical perspective for me. And it's that idea of serving God and serving man, not serving government. You know, our founding fathers believed that all of our rights were given to us by God and that we have the ability and the right to self-govern. We don't really talk much about self-governing, you know, unless, you know, you're in one of those nerdy groups that focuses solely on everything political. And we've really, we've done our, our society uh, a disfavor, I think, because we haven't talked much about that in training up our children in school, maybe even at home. My kids learn some of that, um, just because they're a product of their home environment. But, but this idea of um, self-governing um, was really contemplated with a society where people were in the process of this slow, unglamorous building of character. And without that building of character, uh, our, you know, our society really struggles. So I looked back and kind of examined some of the things in my life. You know, I came from a, a family of diligent, hardworking folks. My parents and my brothers, everybody surrounding um, the spark side of the family, they just work hard. That's what they, that's what they do best. Um, and so, you know, from the time I was old enough to, you know, turn a screwdriver or, or hand a wrench, you know, I was working, doing something productive. Uh, and really, there was this expectation of working in our house, which I think is a really healthy thing. Um, you know, work's not a punishment. Work's an opportunity, Right? It allows us to add value to our society. And as we add value, you know, it, it helps our self-esteem. There's something about us. God created us to, to work, to do tasks. You know, I later saw that work gave me an opportunity to serve. And that was kind of paradigm changing. That was a little bit of a shift for me in that... You know, the, the better I worked, the more I could serve those who I worked with, you know, whether it's my coworkers or my staff or my boss, um, but it also gave me the opportunity to serve around the community. Um, the, um, the more I worked and 
and was successful gave me tools and opportunities to be blessings to others. You know, and I told my kids, several of them are here today, you know, you can work real hard and make a ton of money, and if you spend it all on yourself, you'll never have anything. So if your neighbor's house burns down, you might really want to go help them. But if you haven't saved anything, you have nothing to give them. And so, you know, working hard gives us all kinds of opportunities to serve our fellow man. So, sports, Boy Scouts, school, that was another area um, as I was growing up that really helped me develop skills and it helped me learn how to overcome challenges. You know, in Boy Scouts, it was high adventure, you know, and at the end of the day, you learned that, gosh, you can do so much more than you expected. Same thing with sports, you know. You kind of get past that mental block of, you know, I'm at the end of my rope, and running, they call it the wall, right? You hit the wall, but you find out, really, you can do a whole lot more than that. And that's really helpful in life. Later... You know, coaching kids sports and doing things like, you know, being in the leadership of Indian guides and Indian princesses, um, volunteering with Young Life, things like that forced me to really get out of my comfort zone. Um, Serving on charitable boards like High Sky Children's Ranch, um, one accord for kids, um, later the Texas Public Policy Foundation Those things help me understand that I have a role and an obligation in trying to help solve our, you know, our um, cultural problems. Once again, it's that idea of loving our neighbor. So that part of the equation actually was the easier side for me because I'm a doer. You know, um, but the other side, it's not what you achieve, but it's the person you become was honestly the more challenging side for me. So, you know, I I started looking um, at my spiritual development and how that's kind of helped develop, mold, and shape me. Um, I was, you know, I came to an under, uh, understanding of Christ's sacrifice for me um, in the third grade and understood that, you know, without that sacrifice, I could never have a relationship with God. And, um, but, but the church that I grew up in was very much, um, um, you know, a lot of reverence for God but not much discussion about a personal relationship with Christ as a Savior. Um, So as a Young Life kid, which was kind of my next step, Young Life is a non-denominational Christian organization for high school kids. I went to Young Life camp the summer after my senior year in high school and was finally exposed to this idea of a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, That was kind of a daily ongoing something. You know, it's so much a a contrast to the church that I was raised in, which was not very, um, 
uh, evangelistic. Their idea of evangelism was we're going to be here on Sunday morning and we'll leave the door unlocked if you want to come join us. Not a, not a bad church, but very inward focused. Um, you know, college, uh, had a lot of trying times in college and that forced me to really um, uh, dig down into what do I really believe about this relationship with God? And I was fortunate enough that um, a gentleman named Everett Sheffy, um, who I didn't know at the time, um, had been discipling freshman guys at UT for, at that time, probably more than 20 years. And through God orchestrated some crazy circumstances where I ran into him five different times all over Austin. And um, then ultimately, God provided time in my schedule to meet with him, and he kind of helped me through that rough part of college. Jill and I were fortunate enough um, to be part of the group that went with um, uh, the church plant that First Baptist sent out um, in the early 2000s, which is now Stonegate Fellowship. And uh, we've had the privilege of raising our children here, and I've had the real privilege of working alongside as an elder of some, some extremely godly men that have mentored me and helped me as a dad and as a husband and really just as a person. Um, And then the opportunity to lead Com Group for 20 years and, and to pour into younger folks. But, you know, I find as I've gotten older that I'm missing out if I'm not learning from them as well. Micah 6.8 says... And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So that kind of begs the question, am I fair in my dealings with people? Do I show mercy to those who wrong me? Am I learning about humility? You know, in helping with the personal, um, what am I becoming? Uh, I've had more than my fair share of mentors. A lot of these guys are in this room today. My family, my friends, people that I've worked with in business for years and years, um, people I've worked with in ministry, coaches, teachers, bosses, co-workers. I mean, the list just goes on and on. I've been extremely blessed from that standpoint. I've gotten way more than my fair share. So if you guys are feeling like you've, you know, been a little light on the mentors, it's because I've been hogging them. Um, And I continue to learn about relationships um, through my kids. So most of you guys have kids and you've realized that it's very much on-the-job training. Um, you know, you can't read enough books. You can't listen to enough podcasts um, because each one of them is different. Um, they're all unique. Uh, it's both challenging and rewarding. 
It's gratifying and and oftentimes humbling. Um, I would say that Proverbs is a great resource for raising kids. If you haven't read through Proverbs lately, take the time the next month to read a proverb a day. A lot of great stuff. But, you know, the person who has shown me more about the value of relationships is my wife. Jill loves people, and she loves people well. And in turn, everybody loves Jilly. Um, you know, that's that whole, uh, I, I'm more of a doer, and she's a beer. She's, she's you know, she can't not answer the phone when it rings, literally. It doesn't matter what you're in the middle of. If her phone rings, she's going to answer it. You know, I have developed the discipline of if I'm in the middle of something, I let it go to voicemail, and I'm thankful for that. Um, But Jill loves people, you know, deeply. When we were on the campaign trail, you know, we're going to all of these small communities. So our district is, is 45 counties now goes all the way from El Dorado, Texas, up to the top of the Texas panhandle with Lubbock carved out in the middle. Tons of rural Texas. And we'd pull into these little towns, and everybody loved Jill. They kind of tolerated me because I'm the guy running, but they loved Jill um, for, obvious re- for obvious reasons. But, you know, over our marriage, I have, and I'm still learning. I'm still learning on all this um, but still learning that, um, you know, there are things that are more important than finishing the task. I, um, I've always got a project going on. That, that's just how I work. And my kids are all nodding in agreement. So at one point, when my kids were younger, I decided that I was going to build a barn. I love working with my hands. I love working with wood and iron. And, um, and I decided that it would be a healthy task if all of my kids had to help with that. So, so I, I ordered some plans and then ordered all the material. I mean, it came on a, a semi-truck of stuff. It's a 26 by, it's a 24 by 36 foot barn that's 25 feet tall it created all kinds of challenges. The instructions that I had were very rudimentary. I mean, they were bare bones, um, which created lots of opportunities to, you know, work through the challenges of figuring stuff out. And I thought that, number one, I, I like that kind of stuff. And I thought it'd be good for my kids. Uh, you know, I don't, you, you'll have to talk to them if, afterwards whether that was a good thing or not. But one of the things that I learned through that experience is I had to I had to go against my natural inclination to get out there every weekend to finish it up, and it ultimately became kind of the family joke that the the building of the barn went on for literally years um, because when you have four kids, there's always something that needs to happen, whether it's a ball game or a birthday party or you know, or you finally get everything lined up to make a lot of progress and, you know, bad weather hits 
and you go, well, I'm, I'm, you know, we're not going to stand out there in 25-degree weather and just brave it. There are times in the oil patch where you have to do that, um, but, you know, building a barn with your kids is just not one of those times. And it was really hard for me, but God was really showing me that there are more, more important things in life than finishing that next task. God was so sweet. You know, I told you early on that, you know, this has been a process and I was convinced that there, uh, that God, even though I had known that I was going to take office, um, God knew that years ago. He knew that before I was born. I was up in Amarillo, we were up in Amarillo and um, I'm, I, I'm being introduced to this crusty old guy. Um, who I already know contributed in a big way to my opponent in Amarillo. And, and for those of you who aren't familiar with our situation, our district has a very strong north and south component to it with Lubbock carved out of the middle. And so the, the state senator for our district has always been from Amarillo, as long as I can remember. And so there were a lot of people up in Amarillo that were having heart, heartburn with just the fact no matter what they thought or didn't even know me, the idea that their senator would be from Midland gave a lot of people heartburn. So I'm trying to bridge that gap every, every chance I get up in the panhandle. And so I'm meeting, I'm being introduced to this old crusty guy on a Saturday morning. And, you know, he's got a big old cigar sitting on his conference room table. And, and my folks went with me um, when we went to the panhandle uh, because they were originally from the Panhandle. And it was, it was really a sweet time to spend with my folks as we made tours up there. Um, and of course, all the people up there loved them as well. But I'm introducing kind of everybody in the room and I'm telling this guy, you know, hey, my parents both graduated from high school, my dad from Emerald High, my mom was from the first class of Tascosa. He looks at my mom and he goes, what was your maiden name? And she said, Combs, he said, I knew it. I had a crush on you as a sophomore and you wouldn't give me the time of day. And I'm thinking, oh, crud. Come on, mom, <laughs> help me out here. But literally they spent the next 10 minutes, um, all three of them, mom, dad, and this guy talking about classmates and you know reconnecting and times from their childhood. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I serve an awesome God. To orchestrate that, just—I was in Spearman, which is where my my grandfather's side of the family was from. And one of the things that I loved as a kid, my aunt Mary, who never married, had a little general store right across from the from the school, and um. Every time we'd go up there, she'd hand us a little paper bag and we'd get to go pick candy from the candy store. And it was one of my great childhood memories. And I'm telling that story. Once again, I'm in Spearman at a political forum. And I'm trying to, all these people are staring at me. You know, you're the guy from the South. Why should we vote for you? And I'm trying to help them understand that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of their needs just like I will the oil and gas people down here. And I tell that story about Aunt Mary's store, and afterwards, 
I had a whole host of people come up and share stories about their experience at Aunt Mary's store. And once again, I'm going, you know, God orchestrated that. We, you know, we were struggling, Discovery operating in the early 90s. Uh, you older guys know how long the, the depression of 86 hung around out here. Early 90s, you know, we're trying, we, we don't have enough money to go drill any wells. Nobody was drilling. So we, um, we picked up some wells up in the panhandle, some old junky wells from Texaco. Um, and those wound up being my wells, my area of responsibility. Just so I spent quite a bit of time up there. And lo and behold, there's still a lot of those folks still up there. You know, once again, those connections, I... I wasn't running for office. I was just up there because we needed stuff to do. You know, it's kind of funny. Um, Our very first marketplace Midland speaker was Tim Dunn. I don't know. How long ago has that been? Eight years? Seven or eight years? And he talked about the here-there path. And... You know, boy, you could see all the young guys in the room. They're paying attention. Of course, Tim's been very successful in the oil and gas business, and, and he's really imparting a lot of, of good, deep thinking. Well, I can tell you, running for office never showed up on my map, much less my here, there. But here's where I find myself, and, you know, Seven or eight months into this process, I'm firmly convinced that this is what God's called me to do next. And I am honored to have the opportunity to go do that. I'll close with this. Henry David Thoreau, well, not quite this, a couple more. Henry David Thoreau um, is quoted as saying, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I mean, what a haunting thought. Why do you think that is? I think a lot of those men are men who haven't completely embraced that God, that it's God's show. And that we're called only to do our part in his show and leave the results to him. Proverbs 8.35 says, For he who finds wisdom finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Are we working to find wisdom? Is that our goal? Is that what we seek? A.W. Tozer said, Human nature as we know it is in a formative state. It is being changed into the image of what we love. What are you being changed into? Are you being changed into the image of Christ? Because that's what you deeply love? Are you being changed into something else? You're being changed into being a great engineer or a great salesman or, you know, the greatest version of yourself. First Peter four ten 
tells us that each of us has gifts to be used to serve others so that God will be praised. I'm headed to Austin to serve in the Texas State Senate. But I hope and really even expect that my task there is going to be more spiritual in nature. And those of you who are willing to pray for me and Jill, I'd encourage you to pray for that. Because I really think our battle as a country is a spiritual battle first before it's political or anything else or class warfare or it's a spiritual battle. And I'm hoping that God has opened all of these doors to give me an opportunity to, to go make a difference in that battle, you know, as we try and take care of, you know, making sure that Texas stays on a sustainable path. So my, I guess my question for you, and these are a couple of the table questions for today, and we'll take time to discuss, and then I'll come back up and answer a few questions, is what does success look like for you? When you think of that here, their path, what does is, what is success ultimately look like for you? Um, because you can, you can um, be successful, but if your goal is in the wrong place, where does that leave you? Are you intently searching for wisdom? Are you on that slow, unglamorous path of building character? Those whose joy is in the Lord find favor with Him. Discuss. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Marketplace Midland Podcast. 